0: Chapter One, Observations of an Orderly. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit org. Observations of an Orderly by Ward Muir. Chapter One, My First Day. The sergeant in charge of the clothing store was curt. He couldn't help it. He had run short of tunics, also of pants except three pairs which wouldn't fit me, wouldn't fit anybody, unless we enlisted three very fat dwarfs. He had kept on asking for tunics and pants, and they'd sent him nothing but great coats and water bottles. I could take his word for it. He wished he was at the front, he did, instead of in this blessed hole, filling in blessed forms of blessed clothes, which never came. Impossible, anyhow, to rig me out. I was going on duty, was I? Then I must go on duty in my cities? It was a disappointment. Your new recruit feels that no small item of his reward is the privilege of beholding himself in khaki. The escape from civilian clothes was, at that era, one of the prime lures to enlistment. I had attempted to escape before, and failed. Now at last I had found a branch of the army which would accept me. It needed my services instantly, I was to start work at once. Nothing better. I was ready. This was what I had been seeking for months past, but I confess it, I had always pictured myself dressed as a soldier. The postponement of this bright vision for even twenty-four hours now that it had seemed to be within my grasp, was damping, however. The sergeant-major had told me that I was to go on duty as orderly in Ward W, an officer's ward, at 2 p.m., prompt. I did not know where Ward W was, and did not know what a ward orderly's functions should amount to, and I had no uniform. I was attired in a light gray lounge suit, appropriate enough to my normal habit, but quite too flippant, I was certain, for a ward orderly. Whatever else a ward orderly might be, I was sure that he was not the sort of person to sport a grey lounge suit. Still, I must hie me to Ward W. I had got my wish. I was in the army at last. In the army one does not argue. One obeys. So, having been directed down an interminable corridor, I presented myself at Ward W. On entering I had knocked, but no response rewarded this courtesy. I was requested by a stern-visaged sister to state my business. Her sternness was excusable. The visiting hour was not yet, and, in my unprofessional guise, she had taken me for a visitor. My explanation dispelled her frowns. She was expecting me. Her present orderly had been granted three days' leave, he was preparing to depart. I was to act as his substitute. Before he went he would initiate me into the secrets of his craft. She called him. Private Wood. Private Wood, in his shirt-sleeves, appeared. I was handed over to him. Herein I was fortunate, though I was not aware of it at the time. Private Wood, who was not too proud to wash dishes, which was what he had had at the moment been doing, is a distinguished sculptor and a man of keen imagination. At a subsequent period that imagination was to bring forth the mass for facial disfigurements scheme, which gained him his commission, and which has attracted world-wide notice from experts. Meanwhile, his imagination enabled him to understand the exact extent of a novice's ignorance, the precise details which I did not know and must know, the essential apparatus I had been shown the knack of, before he fled to catch his train he devoted just five minutes no more to teaching me how to be a ward orderly four of those minutes were lavished on the sink room a small apartment that enshrines cleaning appliances the taps of which if you turn them on without precautions treat you to an involuntary shower bath the sink room contains a selection of utensils wherewith every orderly becomes only too familiar their correct employment a theme of many of the mildly rabelaisian jests, which are current in every hospital, is a mystery, until some kind mentor, like Private Wood, lifts the veil. In four minutes he had told me all about the sink-room, and all about all the gear in the sink-room, and all about a variety of rituals which need not here be dwelt on. The sink-room is an excellent place in which to receive a private lecture. The fifth minute was spent in introducing me, in another room, the ward kitchen, to Mrs. Mappin, the scrub lady. A scrub lady is attached to each ward, and most wards, it should justice be added, are attached to their scrub ladies. Certainly I was to find that Ward W. was attached to Mrs. Mappin. Mrs. Mappin was washing up. Private Wood had been helping her. The completion of his task he delegated to me. "'Mrs. Mappin, this is our new orderly. He'll help you finish the lunch-dishes.' Private Wood then slid into his tunic, snatched his cap from a nail in the wall, and vanished. "'Mrs. Mappin surveyed me. Ah,' she sighed. She was given to sighing. "'He's a good un, is Private Wood.' The inference was plain. There was little hope of my becoming such a good un, in any case, my natty grey tweeds were against me. One could never make an orderly-esque impression in those tweeds. Better take your jacket off," said Mrs. Mappin. I did so, chose a dishcloth, and started to dry a pyramid of wet plates. For a space, Mrs. Mappin meditated, her hands in soapy water. Then she withdrew them. I think," she sighed. You and me could do with a cup of tea, and presently I was having tea with Mrs. Mappin. I was afterwards to learn that this practice of calling a halt in her labours for a cup of tea was a highly incorrect one on Mrs. Mappin's part, and that my share in the transaction was to the last degree reprehensible. But I was also to learn that faithful, selfless, honest, and diligent scrub ladies are none too common and the sister who discovers that she has been allotted such a jewel as Mrs. Mappin, is seldom foolish enough to exact from her strict obedience to the letter of the law in discipline. Mrs. Mappin, in her non tea Bibing interludes, toiled like a galley-slave, was rigidly punctual, and never complained. Her sighs were no index of her character. They were not a symptom of ennui, though possibly, if the suggestion be not rude, of indigestion caused by tannin poisoning. She was the best-tempered of creatures. It is a fact that if I had been so disposed, I need never have given Mrs. Mappin any assistance, though it was within my province to do so. She would, without a murmur, shoulder other people's jobs as well as her own. Having finished with bearing children, one was at the front, it was Mrs. Mappin who, on being asked the whereabouts of her soldier son, said, "E's in France. I don't rightly know where the place is, but it's called Dugout.' She had settled down, for the remainder of her sojourn, on this plain to a prospect of work, continuous work. A little more or a little less made no difference to her. She had nothing else to do but work, nothing else to be interested in except work, And her children's progress and her cups of tea. Her ample figure concealed a warm heart. Behind her wrinkled old face there was a brain with a limited outfit of ideas, and the chief of those ideas was work. Our cup of tea was refreshing, but it would be incorrect to convey the notion that I was allowed to linger over such a luxury. There are few intervals for leisure in the duty hours of an orderly in an officer's ward. Had the sister, and her nurses, not been occupied elsewhere, I doubt whether I should have been free to drink the cup of tea at all, a circumstance of which perhaps Mrs. Mappin was more aware than I. At any rate, the call of orderly from a patient summoned me from the kitchen, and into the ward long before I had finished drying Mrs. Mappin's dishes. The patient desired some small service performed for him. I performed it, remembering to address him as sir various other patients observing my presence took the opportunity to hail me i found myself saying yes sir in a moment sir and dropping with the promptitude on which i rather flatter myself into the manner of a cross between a valet and a waiter with a subtle dash of chambermaid soon i was also a luggage porter staggering to a taxi with the ponderous impedimenta of a juvenile second lieutenant who was bidding the hospital farewell, and whose trunks contained, at a guess, geological specimens and battlefield souvenirs in the shape of dud German shells. This young gentleman fumbled with a gratuity, then thought better of it, and was gracious enough to return my grin. Bit awkward, tipping in these days, he apologized cheerily, depositing himself in his taxi behind ramparts of holdalls. Thank you, sir. Seemed the suitable adieu, and having proffered it, I scampered into the ward again. Anon's sister sent me with a message to the dispensary. Where the dispensary was, I knew not. But I found out, and brought back what she required. Then to the post-office. Another exploration down that terrific corridor. Post-office located at last, and duly noted, then to the linen store to draw attention to an error in the morning supply of towels. Linen store eventually unearthed, likewise the information that its staff disclaimed, all responsibility for mistakes, likewise the first inkling of a profound maxim that when a mistake has been made in hospital, it is always the orderly, and no one else, who has made it. Engaged on these errands and a host of intervening lesser exploits in the ward, I had to cultivate an unwanted fleetness afoot. I flew. So did the time. Almost immediately, as it seemed to me, I was bidden to serve afternoon tea to our patients. The distribution of bed tables, of cups, of bread and butter, most of which also I cut. The, a little more tea, sir, or a pot of jam in your locker sir behind the pair of trousers yes here it is sir the laborious feeding of a patient who could not move his arms all these occupied me for a breathless hour then it involved struggle with a patient who had to be lifted from a bath chair into bed i never lifted a human being before then a second bout of washing up with mrs mappen then a nominal half an hour's respite for my own tea actually ten minutes for i was behind hand then all too soon more waitering at the ceremony of dinner this time with the complication that some of my patients were allowed wine beer or spirits and some were not burgundy sir whisky and soda sir i ran round the table of the sitting-up patients, displaying, I was pleased to think, the complete aplomb and nimbleness of a thoroughbred Swiss garcon, pouring out drinks with concealed envy, placing and removing plates, handing salt, bread, servets, after which back to Mrs. Mappin, and her renewed mountain of once more to be washed and dried crockery. It was long after my own supper-hour, had come and gone, that I was able to say au revoir to the ward. The cleansing of the grease encrusted meat tin was a travail which alone promised to last half the night. Mrs. Mappin eventually lent me her assistance, and later I became more adroit. And the calls of orderly from the bed-patients were interruptions I could not ignore. But at last some sort of conclusion was reached. Mrs. Mappin put on her bonnet, the night orderly, who was to relieve me, was overdue. Sister, discovering me still in the kitchen, informed me that I might leave. Ye ain't had any supper, ave you? Said Mrs. Mappin. You won't get none now neither. Should a done a bunk fool full hower back, you should. She drew me into the larder and indicated the debris of our patient's repast: a leg of chicken and some rice puddin', only wasted if you don't have it but is it allowed? I was in truth not only tired, but ravenous. Sister entering upon this conspiratorial dialogue unhesitatingly gave her approval. Cold rice pudding and a leftover leg of chicken, eaten standing, at a shelf in a larder, can taste very good indeed, even to the wearer of a spick-and-span grey lounge-suit i shall know in future what it means when my restaurant waiter emerges from behind the screen service-door furtively wiping his mouth i sympathize i too have wolfed the choice morsels from the banquet of my betters chapter one